Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. I'm John Hardman, the President and CEO of the Carter Center, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the first of this season's conversations at the Carter Center. This series gives all of us here at the Center a way to discuss Carter Center peace and health programs and talk about current world events with all of you, our neighbors, from the area and beyond. We hope that you will also tune in to cartercenter.org on your computer and learn more about upcoming conversations as well as be able to look at past events at the Carter Center. We have a very special welcome to our Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellows, the Fellowship Board, our Task Force for Mental Health Members, as well as Ambassador and Legacy Circle members, our trustees, and our Board of Counselors members. Tonight's event will be webcast on cartercenter.org as well. So for the next hour and a half, we have the opportunity and pleasure of hearing President and Mrs. Carter talk about the work of the center and answer your questions. And if you haven't already done so, there are cards at your seat where you can fill out a question and volunteers will come down the aisles and pick those up and then bring them uh, to me so that during the question period, your question can be asked. But to start the program, we want to share a brief video of the Carter Center work. There are six billion faces on Earth, some full of hope and dreams, others empty with despair, constrained by barriers that keep them from healthy and productive lives. The Carter Center works to tear down those barriers and create a world where everyone has a chance to live in peace and enjoy basic human rights. We look on human rights as a broad umbrella under which we not only have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, freedom of religion and that sort of thing, but also the right of people to have a decent home in which to live, to have food to eat, to have a personal freedom to choose their own leaders, and also to be free from unnecessary disease and hunger. Well, I think the main thing the Carter Center does is bring hope to people. It doesn't matter where we go. The Carter Center has worked in over 70 countries to advance peace and fight devastating diseases. The center's staff of over 150 people work in many of the poorest regions of the world. 
After leaving the White House, the Carters had a strong desire to continue to make a difference in the world. And in partnership with Emory University in 1982, they founded the Carter Center. The Carter Center was created as a place where people could resolve conflicts, like at Camp David. Over the years, the center has helped improve relations among nations and has opened the doors to peace. But it quickly grew to understand that peace is more than the absence of war. It is the building of strong democracies founded on human rights and justice for all. These are the seeds of permanent peace. Well, I think the main thing we've done is to promote the concept of freedom and democracy in countries that had never known what an election was. And this has been a transforming experience for many people. The center has observed over 90 elections in 37 countries, including Indonesia, Liberia, and Panama. As a result, leaders are held accountable to the people in countries that have never had free and fair elections. The Carter Center is a leader in fighting neglected diseases. Diseases like guinea worm, river blindness, trachoma, and lymphatic filariasis. These are gone from the developed world, but they still afflict some of the poorest people on Earth. The uh, promising thing is that these diseases are all preventable because we've proven that in the rich world. If the folks are just given a chance to know what they can do to improve their own lives, then they can transform their own lives into an opportunity for hope and self-respect and anticipation of a better future. The eradication of guinea worm has been one of the major challenges of the Carter Center because this is such a horrible disease and is in such remote villages that no one else ever wanted to tackle it. And we're just on the verge of complete eradication of this disease from the face of the earth. And this will be the second disease in history ever completely eradicated. The transformation of a village population after one year of effort on their part, guided by us, is one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. The people of the Carter Center work for peace, fight disease, and most importantly, bring hope to those who never had it before. We are willing to take a chance that we might fail if we believe that the ultimate goal is worthwhile, worth our effort and worth an investment in people who have been neglected by others. We were the poorest, most isolated people in the world. And I think often if we weren't there, there would be nobody to help them. These people who have been suffering in the past when we work among them or with them, we find that they're just as intelligent, just as ambitious, just as hardworking, and their family values are just as good as mine. The Carter Center works where the need is greatest to improve the lives of the poor, the disadvantaged, and those who have no voice. The center's accomplishments are a fitting tribute to its founders. There are literally hundreds of millions of people whose lives have been changed by what the Carter Center has done, plus many others who have benefited from the proof that we have provided to other agencies that they could do the same thing. Building hope is what we do at the Carter Center.
Well, as you heard on the video, President and Mrs. Carter founded the Carter Center over 30 years ago. And since then, the center's programs have helped to improve the lives of millions of people in more than 70 countries. We have a staff of 175 waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope by engaging at the highest levels of government as well as working side by side with the poor and forgotten people at the grassroots. The Carters are the hardest working volunteers at the center, engaged in all aspect of our work. They travel tirelessly around the world, although they continue to correct me when I say tirelessly, but they work with our staff to monitor elections and resolve conflicts, promote human rights, and eradicate diseases in all of these nations. Their vision for a world at peace guides all of us here at the center and certainly serves as an inspiration to the millions of people around the world seeking a better way of life. So join me in welcoming President and Mrs. Carter. Well, thanks very much. I want to start off by expressing the overwhelming feeling that Rosa and I have toward all of you, and that is gratitude. Because all the things you saw on the screen and what you'll hear tonight would not be possible, obviously, without our great supporters who have been with us now, as John has mentioned, for many of us for more than 30 years. Uh, we've gone into areas that we never dreamed of when I was uh, in the White House. Uh, we found exciting and adventurous and unpredictable things have when we arrived. We've been working with people that we never would have known without the Carter Center. And we've never come home without a feeling of gratitude that we were able to derive more benefit from what we did than any sacrifice or even getting tired uh, that, Rosa, that, that Rosa and I have experienced. So we're very grateful for that. I thought, first of all, I might go down very quickly and just outline some things that the Carter Center has uh, done since our last year's meeting, and then obviously Rosen will uh, correct my mistakes and let you know uh, the areas in which she's particularly interested, and then we'll spend the rest of the time answering your questions on, as I've said before, any subject. I don't think in the last 30-something years I've avoided answering a question. Sometimes it's got me in serious trouble, uh, but, uh, but I'm willing to take that chance. Well. First of all, I'll mention elections. We have uh, now completed 94 elections. Uh, we can only do maybe four or five at the most per year because it's very time consuming and, and costs several million dollars for each election because we take early observers there to learn all about the country, all about the campaigns, all about the, the candidates. And then we send in short-term observers to be there just for about a week or so to actually witness the election itself and Rosa and I join that when we can. And then sometimes our long-term observers stay afterwards to make sure that the results of the election are implemented with 
an emphasis on human rights and democracy and permanence. Uh, we are now getting ready for the next election in Nepal. We've been there before in 2007 and 2008. Uh, I'll be going next uh, week, uh, week after next now, to Myanmar. They used to be Burma. They're preparing for an election in 2015, and, and we'll be preparing for that. But we also are ready to take place, take part this year in uh, Egypt and Palestine, if it happens, in Tunisia and Libya. We've been in all these places before, and we're ready to go again. Uh, another thing that we've done this uh, year and in previous years is have a, a human rights defenders conference. This, in these conferences, we bring anywhere from 40 to 60 what I would call human rights heroes that assemble at the Carter Center when they can escape from their own oppressive governments, and they come here to participate, and we learn from each other. And they bring their stories, sometimes poignant stories of despair and suffering and persecution and deprivation, and then the Carter Center builds our own human rights programs based on what we have learned from these people. This particular year, and last year as well, we address what I think is perhaps the most a uh, serious unmet challenge of the world, and that is the persecution and deprivation of human rights of women and girls. This is something that is originating in the religious beliefs of, I would say, Baptists and Catholics and, and others. Uh, when we announce from the leadership, all men, that women are not equal in the eyes of God and women are deprived of an opportunity to serve their particular religious faith. And from this ordination from home high for very devout people, they derive the, I'd say, the excuse of an employer to pay women less for the same work as men and to make sure that women don't have the leading roles uh, in the outcome of political campaigns. And the slavery now that involves 80% of women is greater than the slavery trade ever was during the 1700s and 1800s of, out of Africa toward the New World. And that slavery is very uh, oppressive. Women's genitals are mutilated and girls are sold into marriage when they're eight or 10 years old. Those kind of things have to be addressed. And that was our, the subject of our Defenders Conference. Uh, this year. I'm writing a book about that, which will be my next book. We are very deeply involved also, as you probably have surmised, in the Middle East. Uh, we had several agreements when I left the White House. Only one of them has been uh, consummated or honored, and that was a treaty between Israel and Egypt, and I think it will survive for many years to come. But the other promises that were made concerning Palestinian rights and so forth have never been honored. And so we are dealing with that as well as some uh, recent uprisings in the Middle East, one of which is Syria. Uh, our workers at the Carter Center go regularly to Damascus to meet with the representatives of the Assad regime and also the opposition groups to try to formulate some ultimate solution when and if a ceasefire can occur. Uh, I just finished an uh, editorial that will be in the Washington Post tomorrow morning that deals with the current events, and I'm sure I might get a question about that later. I'll reserve it until I get a question. <laughs> if I don't get a question, I'll be relieved. <laughs> uh, the next thing is, is South Sudan. As you know, under the Carter Center's uh, observation, at least, 
uh, we've been involved in, in South Sudan for many, many years, and they had a referendum recently, and, and they decided to become independent. But since that independence of South Sudan, now working side by side with what used to be North Sudan and is now called Sudan, they are not uh, cooperating. They are approaching the status of conflict with each other in various disputes over oil and the borderline and things like that. So the Carter Center is orchestrating a series of dialogues between representatives from South Sudan and Sudan to try to work out some better understanding so that we can avoid uh, armed conflict or war and also lead, hopefully, in the future to a, re a resolution. We're continuing our programs in South Sudan in that respect and also to consummate uh, a very uh, deep commitment we have to health programs, which would be my last uh, comments. You heard Guinea Worm mentioned on the screen. We've been dealing with this now for about 30 years. We started out with three and a half million cases of Guinea Worm in over 20,000 villages in 20 countries. The Carter Center has been in all of those villages or trained people to go in them. And we've cut those three and a half million cases down so far this year to about 120. And we believe by the end of this year, And, and the rest of the year, we'll have a few more cases, but uh, Don Hopkins, uh, I was on a talk show this afternoon on what's called Google Plus, and Don uh, agrees with me that by the end of this year, we'll have a maximum of 150 cases in the whole world. This is a 99.9, .9, more than a 99.9% .9 eradication, and we hope that we can get down to the end of this in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, that uh, means that we've reduced that by more than 80% just in the last 12 months. So that's a very good continuing progress. Onchocerciasis or river blindness is another area of, uh, of affliction that's been very important to us. Uh, this is uh, a disease that, has, uh, that causes people blindness. It's the worst infectious diseases, a disease that afflicts human beings and causes blindness. Uh, in the past, we've had free medicine from Merkin Company now for a long time. We treat about more than 12 million people every year uh, for river blindness so they won't go blind because of the microscopic worms in their bodies. But we have learned in six countries in Latin America that we can actually do away with this disease completely and permanently and not have to treat people every year if we give two or more doses of this medicine per year. So we've now gotten the entire world community to agree with us, let's don't continue to talk about control of river blindness, let's talk about elimination of river blindness. And uh, Alaska, Africa, Africa has been a major uh, problem for us, and no one agreed that this was possible until just recently. We've gone into Uganda, we've gone into Sudan, and we have proven that this is possible in, in Africa as well. So now all the nations that are working on river blindness have adopted the Carter Center policy of uh, working to eliminate this disease one by one from countries. Ultimately, we hope we can eradicate disease, the disease altogether. This is a very uh, significant uh, change and development. Trachoma is the last disease I'll mention. There are a couple more that, I, that I'm not going to get into that you saw on the screen. But uh, trachoma is another one. Trachoma is the number one cause of uh, blindness except for cataracts. Trachoma is caused by infection of eyes. And if you go into a Dinka village or, or, or a village uh, among the Maasai people, 
you see children at a distance and you think they're all wearing eyeglasses. And when you get up close to them, you see it's not eyeglass rims, it's a circle of flies around their eyes, <laughs> sucking out moisture from their, from their eye, eyes. And this causes infections. And ultimately the infection causes the upper eyelid to turn inward and the eyelashes, every time you blink your eye, it slashes the eyelids and causes blindness. That's trachoma. And the best way to deal with trachoma really is to get rid of the flies and to teach people basic sanitation. We also give operations to people that already have the infected eyes. But, but uh, we've concentrated on helping people build latrines. Latrines are very important in some parts of Africa because in many parts of that continent, it's absolutely taboo for a woman to be seen relieving herself. Obviously, a man can walk behind a tree, or if you've traveled in Africa quite often, you see boys and men urinating alongside the road. That, that's completely impossible for a woman. So they have to do it inside the house and right around. So we started a program a few years ago in, in, in uh, Ethiopia teaching them how to build a latrine. If a, if a family does it all by themselves, it only costs about a dollar just to firm up the, the surrounding for a hole in the ground, and we build a, a brush or canvas or something around so they can do it in private. So the women adopted this as a women's live movement, uh, liberation movement in Ethiopia. We thought we might have a few thousand uh, latrines built at the end of the first year. We had 86,500, and we just passed 2.9 million latrines. So, as I mentioned before, uh, I'm more famous not for peace between Israel and Egypt, but if I'm more famous as the number one latrine builder on earth. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I'm just as proud of the latrines that I have in the peace agreement, by the way. And, and another thing that we have done is to, is to have education in villages in the countries where we fight trachoma, just to teach people what causes it and what to do about it. And we've now finished an education program I just read in seven Seven to nine hundred villages, almost 8,000 villages. And just to put that into perspective, uh, when I was running for governor, when I was governor, I knew that in Georgia there's about 600 villages. And you compare that with 8,000, that's how many people we've taught how to get rid of, uh, of trachoma. So the Carter Center is busy and many other things I don't have to mention, but it's the, now the most important part of our presentation, and that's my wife, Rosalind. Rosalind? <coughs> Did you tell them we've eliminated, for all practical purposes, river blindness from Latin America? I've mentioned that. You can well, say it again. I, I think I was probably thinking about what I was going to say <laughs> and not listening to you. <laughs> um, well, in our mental health program, we have fellowships, um, mental health fellowships for journalism. And uh, for the last two days, we've had our mental health fellows here. They're over on this side. And um, we have... Let us stand up. Let's stand up. Stand up. Let us stand up. Don't be hesitant. Stand up. <laughs> There's some in the back, too. Yeah. Because we, we have six from the United States, two from Romania, and two from um, two, Colombia, our new country. Two from Colombia. Um, we also have the fellowship we have trained uh, people in, uh, fellas in South Africa and um, New, Zealand. New Zealand. 
we do five years, sometimes it takes a little longer, um, and then they're on their own. So the programs in South Africa and uh, New Zealand have been sustained, and Romania is working really hard, and I, I think we're gonna, they're going to be sustained too, so we're proud of them. And we have, they come in September, some come during the year, but they come in September and tell us what they're going to do, and then they come back the next September and tell us what they've done. So we have the incoming and the outgoing fellows here um, every September. And um, it, it's really wonderful to have them. Um, we, we actually uh, try to tell them what we know about mental health issues. Um, and we, we call it training them, we training them. Um, so that they can report accurately and in-depth on mental health issues. And um, I, I am just so proud of our mental health journal journalists because we now have trained uh, about 150. This is our 17th year. And all of these people, it, what happens is that most of them continue reporting on mental health issues. Not always, and not all the time, I mean. But, and some do it um, for their cause, but, uh, for the cause. But um, others um, do, in, along with other things that they're doing, they will be reporting on mental health issues. So we have 150 people out there now who are reporting accurately and in-depth on mental health issues, and I'm really pleased and proud about, about that. Um, well, this November, we're having our annual mental health symposium, and it's going to be on the Affordable Care Act. And um, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm I'm very concerned about it because um, we only have 20-something uh, states that um, are participating. Georgia is not one of them. We are not uh, going to um, participate. I think we have to to a certain extent, but we are um, going our own way in going about it. And so I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about... Um, about, um, well, I think the, the main thing is that we try to, we, we have the guidelines that we have to go by, but then since George is not um, going exactly by those guidelines, we have to find a way uh, in Georgia to make it happen here. And I don't know what that's going to be involved. We're not taking part in one part of it, um, and that. Um, and so many other states are doing that too, so I'm concerned about that. And the symposium will, will, will talk about uh, what's going to be done, and um, I'm looking forward to it because I don't think many of us understand real in depth uh, what it's what it all involves. But it's supposed to uh, take place beginning in o October the first, and so by November we'll know a little bit more than we do now about it. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to bring up was our program in Liberia. Um, for the last four years, we have um, begun a mental health program in Liberia. And um, it is so exciting. Liberia had one psychiatrist. But now we have um, two uh, trained people in uh, every uh, county, which is like states uh, in, in all 15 counties in um, Liberia. And um, 
We've trained 100, and we're aiming for 150. And so I'm excited about that. And I think that might be the, the I might just stop right there and be able to answer questions. <laughs> well, that was, uh, that was great. And now we have a lot of very good questions. I want to thank everyone that submitted uh, questions online or via Twitter. And we will certainly uh, take as many questions as we have time for, along with the questions that were submitted here in the House. The first question is from a senior at the University of Georgia saying, President Carter, if you were 21 again, <laughs> what would you seek to achieve to best impact the future of our country? I would try to organize something that would be called a Carter Center. <laughs> uh, that would work among people that were otherwise uh, neglected and that would give us a chance to interrelate with people we would never otherwise know. And I might work uh, maybe one week a year on Habitat projects and uh, I might try to get a job uh, at Emory teaching, uh, te teaching school. Uh, so those, and I would stay married to Rosalind. So uh, <laughs> those are the things I would do. <laughs> The next question is from someone from Malaysia. What should President Obama do tomorrow regarding Syria? Uh, well, as I said, I've spent the last couple of days writing a, an editorial to go into the Washington Post. I wanted it to be in today before he made his speech tonight, but we couldn't uh, get it through and, and the Washington Post asked me to let him wait until tomorrow. So I'm gonna be staying up tonight and watch this speech, which is at nine o'clock. And then after that, I'll be talking to the editors of the Washington Post to see if I need to make any changes in my text. But, um, but what I, I'm saying basically, and that is, first of all, if the vote is no in the Congress, it will not be a catastrophe as far as the credibility of the president of our country is, in, uh, is concerned. A lot of people are saying, well, if we just get a no vote, it's going to be a terrible blow to our country, to our president. And I don't think that's true. Because all of us presidents in the past have submitted things that were extremely important to us, maybe even more important than bombing uh, Syria, and we've been rejected by the Congress. So this is just something you have to live with in a democracy. They've already had the same thing happen in Great Britain. And as you know, France is beginning to back down now, and I don't think that France government, uh, uh, president could get any bill through through his parliament. So that's going to happen anyway. The other, the other thing is that the Congress has not, not yet decided what to do. The, the United States public is heavily uh, oriented against any military strike. Uh, I share that belief, but I'm also concerned about what President Obama can do now to bring back uh, his uh, stature and to make sure we have a successful conclusion of rapidly changing events in Washington, uh, in the United Nations, in U New York, uh, in Syria, and obviously in Russia. Uh, this is something that, uh, that needs to be done. We have a, uh, a situation where everybody agrees that uh, chemical weapons were used. And there's varying accounts of how many people were killed, anywhere from 350 to 1,400. I don't know how many, but too many were killed by chemical weapons. Uh, and there's no doubt about that. But exactly who 
gave the orders is still unproven. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that the attack came from areas held by the Syrian regime and went into areas that were occupied by the rebels. But whether or not President Obama gave the order or whether it was something done against his wishes, nobody will ever know. The Russians claim no, we claim yes. But that means that a difference between these two great countries uh, makes sure that any resolution in the United Nations Security Council blaming Obama will, will be vetoed. So, so we got a, dead, a deadlock uh, in, in that respect. Uh, we also know that something needs to be done by the international community, hopefully collectively and cooperatively, to make sure that this never happens again. And as you probably have read in the paper, Syria has never agreed uh, to the international uh, commitment not to have chemical weapons. They're one of the few countries that did not, so they're not violating any commitment that they made. I, I think we've seen lately the inclinations that Obama is unlikely to get a positive vote uh, in the House or Senate. Uh, nobody knows what the vote's going to be. He's been meeting and doing the best he could under the circumstances to tell the people how he feels, to tell the Congress how he feels, and to let the international uh, community know how President Obama feels. But uh, I was surprised uh, when he said he was going to take the issue to the Congress. I thought he was ready to launch uh, missiles, but uh, I was pleased that he did go to the Congress, which I think was the right, the right decision. So what do we do now? I think that uh, tonight we'll see what President Obama has in mind. My own preference is that we join in with Russia and Great Britain and, and uh, France and China. I believe we can work cooperatively in saying that this has happened. We don't know for sure who ordered it. It will never happen again. And to take up Russia's proposal based on an early kind of joke that Secretary of State John Kerry made that uh, Syria agree to give up their weapons. And so if they do turn over their weapons to the United Nations, that will create a new environment on the ground in Syria because they have many, many stockpile locations in Syria. And if you send, say, a 20-person United Nations inspection team to all of those different places in Syria, you would have a ceasefire in a large part of Syria. And this would lead to what I really believe we need to do and hope we will do, and that is to go back to Geneva where the United States and Russia and opposition in Syria and maybe some representatives from the Syria government, maybe even invite Iran in and have a, an agreement that the war can be over and that we can have elections in Syria. So that, in a rambling way, kind of summarizes what I believe that Obama, President Obama would like to do, and I hope that he'll spell out some way tonight that we'll do it. There's some arguments now in the United Nations. They had a scheduled meeting this afternoon at 4 o'clock that was uh, canceled uh, because uh, the United States was insisting that in the resolution that Obama, I mean, that, that uh, Assad had to admit that he was guilty, and he's not going to do that, and Russia will not support that, and also that, that uh, Title Seven in the United Nations Security Council would be implemented, that is, military action would be guaranteed by the United Nations if the uh, agreement was not carried out. They're not going to agree to that. So the United States is going to have to back away from that and work out some deal. And the last thing I'll say is that, that Secretary Kerry has announced that he's going to Geneva to meet uh, with Foreign Minister Lavrov from Russia, I believe, on Thursday. So I hope that, that 
the United States and Russia can work out a deal that Syria will accept it and there won't be any need for a military strike. The, the military strike will not solve anything. As you know, uh, Secretary Kerry announced a few days that it, it would be unbelievably tiny, uh, an unbelievably tiny attack uh, will, will not uh, bring about any change uh, in Syria. But, but if we launch a, a tiny attack after, well, after Obama's had several weeks to mix his, new, his uh, chemical weapons with people, then no matter what we try to hit, we're going to hit a bunch of people. And, and as you know, if we, if we kill a few dozen people with our missiles, their photographs are going to be on, on every news medium in the world. And the United States is going to be blamed. And I think it will just make the war go on longer. So I hope that's the last question I get tonight about Syria. I've told you more, <laughs> I've told you more than I know. Thank you. You left the Baptist Church to protest its treatment of women. Where do you currently practice your faith, and do you think that such deeply entrenched dogma will ever be altered? Well, that's, that's one of the major subjects that we discussed at our Defenders Conference about women's rights. Yes, back in uh, the year 2000, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention at, in, uh, in Florida was taken over by more conservative leaders after a long series of elections. And the conservative leaders ordained two things. One was that the policies of, uh, of our faith would no longer be based on the teachings of Jesus Christ, but would be based on the interpretation of the scriptures throughout the entire Bible. And I didn't like that. But the other thing they said was that women would have to admit that they were submissive to their husbands and the result of that would be that no woman in the Southern Baptist Convention could be a, a pastor or a deacon or a missionary or a chaplain, and that women in some Southern Baptist Convention seminaries, that is graduate schools, could not even teach classes if a boy was in the class because you can find, find a verse in the Bible that says that women should not teach men. Well, you can find verses that say everything. So, so Rose and I decided to withdraw from the Southern Baptist Convention. And we belong to what's called the, the um, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is a more moderate group. When we withdrew, a lot of entire churches and groups withdrew as, as well. So we have, we have a little church in Plains called Maranatha Baptist Church. Uh, we have one man pastor, one woman pastor. Uh, half the deacons are, are women, including one that's sitting at the head table with me, uh, and the chairperson of the deacons is now a woman. So we have, we have cemented the fact that we believe that women are equal to men. The problem is that, for instance, in the Catholic Church, which I admire, uh, they have ordained since the third or fourth century A.D. that women can no longer serve as leaders in the church. So as you know, there's a group called Women on the Bus, or Nuns on the Bus, that make up a majority of, of Catholic nuns in the United States that have insisted to Pope John Paul II and others since then that women be treated as equal to men and they serve in positions of leadership, including priests and so forth. Uh, that has not yet been done, but they're still pursuing that. I'm not gonna go any further, but in, in, the, in the Islamic world, just like in the Christian world, countries have different policies. In, in some countries, 
you have very strong a woman's participation in every aspect of life. In others like Saudi Arabia, a woman cannot drive an automobile. And no woman in, in Saudi Arabia has ever voted yet. Uh, twice in the past, King Abdullah has promised to let women vote. He's backed off on his promise both times. He now says that in the local elections in 2015, women will have a chance to vote for the first time. So you have varying degrees of women's equal rights ordained by leaders uh, in the religious space. And the question from Malaysia uh, deals with a, a very strong women's group there who've been insisting that in the Koran, and I think in the Holy Bible, it very clearly says that men and women are created equal and they should be treated equally in the eyes of God. So that's my own belief. And that, but it's still a very serious uh, religious argument and it's its foundation, in my opinion, for much of the persecution of women that I outlined earlier. Mrs. Carter, can you tell us more about the Mental Health Symposium and why is it important to bring together mental health experts from across the country? Well, we have the symposium every year and we choose a current um, topic, something that is um, in the news and something that's important. Um, and um, this year, we, as, as I said earlier, we, ch we chose the Affordable Care Act because I think that's on everybody's mind how, what's going to happen and how um, um, it's going to affect them. And so we bring people from all across the country to the symposium. They come, um, they are the best people in the mental health field. Um, they come from, uh, every year it's a little bit different. Some of the same ones come, but every year, depending on the subject, um, we have um, the experts in the field. And um, so um, I'm, um, I always look forward to it, and it's, it, it does bring together the, um, the uh, leaders in the mental health field from across the country. Thank you. And often they don't spend time talking to each other. Uh, That's right, and the, they, they don't get together um, at other times. And uh, very much, and they're always glad to, to be together and to talk about the issues. And and it's it, we've been doing this for years and years. I don't remember how many years, but um, um, and so we do get the cream of the crop, uh, best ones. Yeah, come. Twenty-nine years, I think. President Carter, my husband and I have heard you speak about your experience of writing a book with Rosalind. <laughs> Well, will Mrs. Carter have a role in writing your book about women? <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. Uh, nobody has seen what I've written so far except Rosalind. And she's the best editor that I have. She is completely unrestrained in her criticisms. <laughs> and she's very knowledgeable, uh, knowledgeable about every subject that I've ever, ever chosen, particularly this one. And, um, and so Rosa and I cooperate that way. When Rosa writes a book on mental health or caregiving, she's nice enough to let me look it over and I make some suggestions. But the fact is that when we make each other suggestions, we can reject them if we want to. And when we wrote our first book together and our last book together, uh, <laughs> it almost broke up our marriage. That's, that, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. That is that, literally that's a, the truth. That's the, greatest, <laughs> that's the greatest danger we have ever had to having a divorce. We signed a contract 
to write a book, and we decided to write it together. And uh, we write in, in a completely different ways. Uh, I write very rapidly. I can turn out a prayer, I mean, I can turn out a chapter in a couple of days. In one day. Okay, in <laughs> one day, I say a couple of days. Rosen writes very uh, slowly and very carefully. Every sentence she makes before she goes to the next sentence has got to be perfect. So when I give my text to Rosen, she looks on it as a rough draft. And, uh, That's what it is. And, and so she changes it very uh, voluminously. But if she gives me her text, it's just like she brought it down from Mount Sinai, God gave. <laughs> I've heard him say this before, and it's, it's almost absolutely true. <laughs> So, so we finally decided, although we had a pretty good uh, advance from the publisher, we finally decided to give up the book because we couldn't go any further with it. And, and we couldn't even talk to each other in a friendly way. We just wrote ugly messages back and forth on the computer. And, and so our editor came down from New York and met with us and said, look, there's some parts in the book that Jimmy writes and some parts that Rosen writes and I'm going to divide them equally. So he gave me half the paragraphs on which we could not agree and gave Rosen half. And he said, okay, Rosen, you write your paragraphs, Jimmy can't comment. Jimmy, you write your paragraphs, Rosen can't comment. So if you, if you buy the book, uh, which, which is everything to gain, making the most of the rest of your life, you'll see that by some paragraphs there's a big R. That's Rosen wrote those. By other paragraphs there's a big J. But uh, you can see why we will never again write a book together. But we still cooperate now in a very friendly way. And we talk about the subject. Time. Yeah, we talk it We over. talk about the subject and but, talk to each other about it, but we don't write together. No. We, we couldn't talk about it before, but now we talk about it. Mr. President, my name is Carter Brzezinski, and I'm a 15-year-old sophomore at Academic Magnet High School in Charleston, South Carolina. I would like to say that on behalf of my school, Global Studies class, and parents who took me to your book signing when I was six months old, <laughs> that I have a well-prepared, intelligent question to ask. <laughs> The truth is, I just wanted to be here, although it means missing some classes, and my question is, can you please sign my absence excuse note for school? <laughs> uh, is the student here, here somewhere? I think I better read it first. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> How do you spell your last name? Are you Ken to Brzezinski? Zbigniew? No. Emika? No? He says not. I bet there are not very many in, uh, in America. Yeah. But, but there's a wonderful family, and congratulations on coming here. Thank you for coming. And uh, you should get to know the rest of your family. <laughs>
You have two good names with Carter Brzezinski. Yeah. <laughs> President Carter, do you still teach your Sunday school class in Plains? Yeah, one of my duties at Maranatha Baptist Church, which I mentioned already, is to teach your Bible lessons every Sunday. And I do this every uh, day that I'm home on, on that uh, day. And, and ordinarily, in a year, I'm home uh, Sunday mornings about 35 times. I, I think this past Sunday I taught my 628th lesson since I left the White House. So if you want to come and hear me teach sometimes, I'll come down to Maranatha. You, it's on the website. You can tell when I'm going to be there and when I'm not. I teach about half a uh, classes from the Old Testament, half from the New Testament. And whatever the text is, I try to, to uh, give a little bit about my own experiences in dealing with that subject, but also try to make it relate to the people in the audience. We have about 15% of the people that come are visitors who are Baptists and the others are Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians. A lot of uh, Catholics come, Jews come, uh, Hindus come, Muslims come, uh, others come, and we have quite a heated uh, exchange of uh, conversations, and, uh, and, and I always learn a lot, and I enjoy it. But this is something that I have done since I was 18 years old. I, I taught Sunday school when I was a midshipman at the Naval Academy, and I've been teaching off and on ever since. While I was gov uh, president, by the way, I taught uh, Sunday school classes at the First Baptist Church, I think, 14 times. We didn't tell anybody ahead of time. I didn't want to overcrowd the church with uh, demonstrators, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I still teach. So you'd be welcome to come down and uh, visit with us on Sunday. This question is an online question from Conakry, Guinea. What can be done to stop child labor and trafficking in Africa? Well, the only thing that can be done effectively, I believe, is to get the United Nations to pass and enforce an international law that would make it illegal and would also outlaw any products that were manufactured by or made by little children. And we see on 60 Minutes and other uh, evening shows little tiny boys uh, that's only three or four years old carrying heavy loads and that sort of thing. It's a disgrace. Uh, to our country, and, and obviously it would, be, it would be better for all those nations who depend on child labor to do away with it. Uh, this is one of the things that can be done uh, is to enforce the laws. The International Labor Organization is trying to do that, but they don't have really the support from the major nations to, to put it into effect. So to publicize it, to, to investigate the origin of things that are manufactured or produced, uh, and to outlaw their sale in the rich world if it's made by children is the best way, I think, uh, on a long-term basis to correct the problem. Another online question from Thailand. What are the Carter Center's peace initiatives in Nepal, and how can the center help bring a lasting peace and democracy there? Well, the Carter Center's been going to Nepal for a number of years. Rosa and I were there earlier this, uh, this year. And we uh, visit uh, Kathmandu and try to go out in the countryside if possible. Uh, in 2007, as you know, uh, maybe a year or two before that, the king was overthrown. They had an election. I was there three times for the election. Twice it was postponed, and they eventually had it in February of 2008. And unfortunately for the U.S. and Nepal relationships, it was won by the Maoists. And the United States declared that the Maoists were terrorists. So we declared that the winners of the election were terrorists, and we couldn't relate to them. 
which is, was a ridiculous uh, result. So the Carter Center has been there then and now, and we are working with the leaders of, uh, of Nepal, whoever is chosen by the people themselves, to try to bring about a, a permanent constitution and also an honest and fair election in November in a divided Nepal. But now they have moved away from, a, uh, from the only Hindu kingdom in the world to a democracy. And I believe that in the elections themselves, which we have monitored, the outcome of the election was fairly well accurate as far as the will of the people uh, who went to the polls to vote. So we hope that this year will bring about a, a, a good final arrangement of, that will built built upon the outcome of the election and that the United States and others would accept the results. What do you believe is the most pressing public health issue globally, and what can the Carter Center do about that? And what is the next disease the center might focus on beyond guinea worm? The, the Carter Center has the best uh, opportunity of any organization in the world to answer that question because we have the uh, International Task Force on Disease Eradication that's located at the Carter Center. It's been here beginning about 25 years ago. And we, and we have about a dozen of the most important health organizations on earth that participate, including the Gates Foundation, uh, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and others that I need not name. And they come here every month or so and meet with our leaders at the Carter Center and they analyze every human illness to see which one can be eliminated from a particular country or region or ultimately eradicated from the entire world. And so that gives us uh, an insight, working side by side with the Centers for Disease Control right next door on what is the best uh, opportunities for the Carter Center and others to expend our effort. And that's how we got involved in, in guinea worm and others, and that's what's made it possible for us to, to go from control to elimination of blindness and so forth. Other diseases have been identified by this task force as possibilities. I would say measles is one, mumps is one, obviously polio is one. Uh, in, in addition to, to those, obviously a guinea worm. Uh, those, those are some of them that have been considered and uh, no, no uh, disease can be targeted to be eradicated without the official approval of the World Health Organization. And that takes a long time to obtain because it's a big bureaucracy and it moves very slowly and carefully. So these are the kind of things that can be done. I would say that malaria is one that might go on the list uh, in the near future. The Carter Center, in addition to our five kind of obscure, neglected diseases, has also now adopted malaria. So we are dealing with malaria in a major way in a number of countries now, uh, primarily in Africa and also in Hispaniola. Uh, which is uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic, as you know. So, so that's how we will choose in the future. When we get rid of guinea worm, uh, we'll be ready to move into other diseases, either to concentrate on river blindness more or trachoma more, or maybe to adopt a new disease, maybe possibly like measles. That'll be decided by our board of directors though, in the future. So there are plenty of opportunities, but the one thing that the Carter Center has, as you just heard repeatedly from me, is our tentacles go into every disease and every community in the world to see where we can best expend, it to expend our time and effort and also where the World Health Organization and others can, can put their efforts to the most benefit. 
Do you find the recent elections in Iran to be promising for worthwhile diplomatic interactions between that regime and the U.S., or do you believe that the Ayatollah will continue to reject diplomatic overtures from the West? Well, as you all know, the Ayatollah, who is, a military, who is the religious leader, is the boss. But the recent election of a very moderate president who knows the outside world, uh, he's been Iran's negotiator with, uh, with the so-called Group of Eight, uh, which is the United States and Great Britain and France and Germany and, and Russia and so forth. He knows the outside world. The statements that he's made recently have been very moderate since he was installed as president, with the approval, by the way, of the Ayatollah to run for president. Uh, he even sent a congratulatory letter to the Jews in Iran on Rosh Hashanah, or whatever the election, whatever the holy day was, which everybody noticed. So I think it's a good opportunity for the United States to open up a little bit more diplomatic opportunity to deal with Iran in a direct way. Uh, as you may know from ancient history, when the, when the Shah was overthrown and the Ayatollah Khomeini took over the government, I immediately established diplomatic relations with the revolutionary government. I thought it was better for the United States to deal with revolutionary governments than just to alienate ourselves from them and separate them from us and not even talk to them. And it was my uh, ambassador uh, personnel to the Ayatollah's revolutionary government that were taking this as hostages. And he had an equivalent number of, uh, of, of diplomats in Washington. So I think we ought to open up every possible channel of, of uh, communications and, and, and give Iran the, the best possible chance, no matter what the attitude of the Ayatollah is, to have a resolution of the differences between us. Can you comment on the UN Declaration of Human Rights and why it has not been more embraced by the world community. At the end of the Second World War, there was a, a global feeling of, uh, of idealism and uh, morality and commitment to two basic principles. One was peace because more than 100 million people were killed in the Second World War. And the other was human rights because of the terrible results of the Holocaust. And so the UN at its early stages was organized, committed itself to peace, not war, and also began to compose what came to be known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There, Almost half the paragraphs uh, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I'd, last, I'd ask all of you to read it, it doesn't take long, are devoted to the rights of women, for instance, and they are now being mostly ignored. And the United States at this moment is violating 10 of the 30 paragraphs in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And because of the divisions that now exist inside countries and between regions of the world, it would be impossible to pass the Universal Declaration of Human Rights again. But it's there, and it's, a, it's an idealistic uh, commitment, almost approaching perfection, on how everyone on earth should be treated equally uh, in every aspect of life. 
and, and it's kind of a Bible for me. I keep a copy of, on my desk here at the Carter Center, and I keep a copy on my desk uh, in Plains. And I look at it every now and then. So look it up on Google and, and, and or copy, get a copy of it. It's, it's a very worthwhile thing. And one of the bases for my book about women's rights is going to be to show two things. How does violence contribute to abuse of women? That is a lot of wars and the death penalty and things of that kind. And how does the violation of the Declaration of Human Rights uh, contribute to the abuse of women and girls? So it's a good guideline, not only for nations, but for every human being. And I hope that all of you will uh, at least listen to what I say and maybe take my advice. What was the passion that drove you to work so tenaciously for the Panama Canal Treaty? And are you pleased with that today? When I became president, uh, as you probably remember, we had broken diplomatic relations with uh, Panama. And about a third of the Latin American countries and Caribbean countries had broken diplomatic relations with us because we were abusing the Panamanian people and both uh, Eisenhower and Lyndon Johnson, my predecessors, had promised to give the canal zone back to the Panamanians, and we had not done so because of pressures from the U.S. Congress and so forth and the American people. So I decided, maybe somewhat foolishly when I became president, to go ahead and finish an honest and fair new uh, peace treaty between the United States and Panama and to put it into effect. And it was the most difficult uh, political undertaking I ever had in my life. It was more difficult to get two-thirds of a Senate to vote for the Panama Canal treaties than it was for me to be elected President of the United States. Uh, because in, back in November on Election Day, when I was running against Gerald Ford in 76, uh, 48 members of the U.S. Senate introduced a resolution declaring that they would never give the Panama Canal back to Panama. And as you can see, it only took 33 of those to kill the treaties. But we passed the treaties, and we finally got uh, 67 votes. And it went into effect beginning, uh, first of all, in the year 2000, and then, and then now part of it is permanent. The permanent part is that we can defend Panama if it's attacked. And in the case of, of emergency, our ships can go first. We have first, first claim at going through the canal. And, and so uh, when 2000 came, the uh, Panama Canal treaties were still unpopular. And so the president wouldn't go down there to turn over the canal to the Panamanians. And none of his cabinet officers would go either, including his secretary of state. I'm not going to call the name because you can look it up on who, who was his president. <laughs> so that's, a, that's a, one of the first things that the president ever asked me to do. He asked me to go down and give away the canal. Uh, so I did. I went down, and I represented the United States in giving the canal and the canal zone over to the Panamanians. And then uh, later when the Panamanians decided to expand the canal, they asked the president of the United States to go down and, and participate in the ceremony. The president refused to go. And a different president asked me to go. <laughs> uh, so I got elevated twice in my, in my post-presidential post year. And I went down, and the then president of Panama, who was a son of the president of Panama that negotiated the canal zone, 
he and I push the plunger together that will widen the canal and double its capacity. So the, the Panamanians have done tremendously good job. Even at the end of the year 2000, they had already quintupled the amount of income from the canal. And, and now, of course, with the new widened canal, they'll do even better. So I've been extremely proud of what has happened uh, with the canal. And it was one of the most difficult demonstrations of human rights that I could uh, put into effect because I think human rights not only apply to people's ability to worship as they want to and have free speech, but human rights ought to relate between powerful countries and, and small countries and, and treat them uh, with honesty and respect. Uh, this question is online from the University of California, Berkeley. What can the Carter Center do to help implement serious campaign finance reform? This country has become beholden to the super rich and corporations who basically have controlled our elections. Well, this, I think, is a basic cause of uh, polarization in our country. And that is a massive infusion of money into the uh, American political arena, not just for presidents, but also for members of Congress, for U.S. senators, for governors, and everybody else. And this is a, a, a dramatic change since the time I ran for president twice. Uh, and this means that in the United States elections now, the rich people, including corporations partially owned by foreigners, can put in an almost unlimited amount of money to support a candidate of their choice. And it means that the candidates themselves are deeply obligated when the election is over, not to forget their financial friends. And I don't think there's any doubt that a, su a successful Congress member and a successful president and so forth will open their doors at welcome of somebody that raised or gave them 100,000 bucks to be elected. And that means that they have a much greater influence over the passage of laws and so forth than average people that don't have a lobbyist uh, in Washington and so forth. This has also meant that a lot of that money going into American campaigns is spent not on discussion of issues, but on uh, television commercials to destroy the reputation of your opponent and to prove that your opponent is a scoundrel, that he's not, uh, he or she is not competent and so forth. And by the time the election's over, the general public uh, who say they don't like negative advertisements but go along with them, uh, they don't think either candidate is qualified, particularly the one that got elected. And then when they get to Washington, they, they hate each other. And as you know now, there's red states and blue states for the first time in history. We've never had that before. Uh, and so that's what's happened with our electoral system. I don't think there's any solution to it to answer the question of a student from university, Berkeley University until the Supreme Court is changed, get a more rational Supreme Court, and uh, because, because if they have one fault, they always support the major corporations and whatever's best for rich people, and they, uh, that will be changed by ruling of the Supreme Court because I don't think the Congress is going to change it because incumbent Congress members now have gotten uh, dependent on the system, and if you're already an incumbent in Congress, then you can get a lot more money than your challenger because you can promise 
I'm already in Congress. I'm on this committee. I'll help you if you help me, and so that, that sort of thing. By the way, I might add that when I ran for uh, president in 1976 against Gerald Ford uh, in a general election, uh, I raised this much money, and so did Gerald Ford. And when I ran four years later against Ronald Reagan in a general election, he and I raised this much money. That's what can be done in the future by public financing of political campaigns, not just for president, but also for Congress and so forth. That's what I think is the ultimate solution. And we might get so bad off and not be able to govern in Washington that the Congress and the Supreme Court will rule to get money out of our political life. What is the status of pro-democracy, human rights, and education work in China generally? Well, I would say that in the last 30-something uh, years, since I normalized diplomatic relations with China, they've been, had tremendous changes. And that would include, um, obviously, economic freedom, which is a major element of freedom, and also the freedom of people to move around from one place to another, and a great improvement in freedom of worship. Uh, at the time we normalized relations, there was no freedom of worship. It was illegal to worship, to have a church. It was illegal to have a Bible. Those things are now legal. Uh, that's been a partial success because now if you want to start a new church congregation, for instance, you have to get permission. You don't have to get permission from the government. You have to register with the government. But China is now the fastest-growing Christian nation on earth uh, because of that change. So there have been some good changes in, in China. Uh, as far as, as uh, political changes are concerned, there hasn't been much. And I would say that since uh, Deng Xiaoping and my era, which is now 30-something years ago, uh, there's been no progress, really, in the freedom of uh, Chinese people uh, to choose their own uh, representatives in the National Congress. One of the surprising things to me has been that among the major countries, China has the most advanced system of equality for women. Uh, women play a, a much greater role in the top echelons of China's economy than in most other nations on the world, by about twice as much as in the United States and the number of uh, women in the National People's Congress of China, their parliament, is much greater than ours or most other countries in the world. But uh, as you know, it's still controlled by one party, the Communist Party. And lately, as the Communist Party leaders have seen the awakening in, in the Arab countries and so forth, I think they've tightened down instead of loosened up on the right of people to vote, go to the polls and choose their own uh, government leaders. Nearly a decade ago, I asked you if we would see the creation of a Palestinian state during our lifetime. Are we any closer to realizing this? Why or why not? Uh, compared to how long ago? Ten years ago. No, I'd say compared to ten years ago, this is about the same. Uh, when I left office, we had the promise of uh, full Palestinian autonomy, that they could run their own affairs, elect their own leaders. We had the promise of Israel's withdrawal from the occupied territories. 
both their military and political forces. We had the promise of Israel moving to have peace agreements with all of their neighbors, including Lebanon and Syria and so forth. Those are the three promises I mentioned earlier that have not been honored from the Camp David Accords. The fourth one was a treaty between Israel and Egypt, and that has been honored. Not a word of it's been uh, violated in the last 34 years. So as far as Palestinian uh, state is concerned, we've had a, a serious additional setback under the recent regime, regime under Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think he and his uh, allies in the in the government have decided privately to go to a one-state solution, which is for Israel to take over control of all the territory from the uh, Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River Valley, and just to give the Palestinians a little bit of, of token freedoms. Uh, that has not been uh, realized yet, but it's approaching the time when it'll be too late to change it. Uh, I was very pleased that John Kerry, as soon as he became Secretary of State, has started a new move to bring about at least some peace talks between Israel and, and, and the Palestinians to deal with this issue. And we don't yet know what will happen. Uh, I met with John Kerry uh, a day before he announced this uh, agreement, and then I went to London and met with Palestinian leaders, and both of them at least are willing to give it a try. But unless the President of the United States and, and so forth gets fully behind this and brings an end to the Israelis' building of settlements and so forth and, and insists on going back to the 1967 borders with some modifications negotiated, I don't think there's a chance for uh, Palestinian rights or for peace between Israel and the Palestinians or Israel and Lebanon or Israel and Syria or even a permanent peace between Israel and Jordan and, and, and Egypt. I think that that commitment uh, that I hope we all have to bring peace to Israel will not be uh, realized until the Palestinians also have rights. That's my own opinion, and I think that's the opinion of the, of the Carter Center. It's the opinion of, of another group in which I'm involved called the uh, Elders, and, uh, and we unanimously believe that that's the only solution. And that's what the official position is of the United Nations, of the United States government, uh, and of most nations in the world. But the Israelis don't want to see them have to, have to withdraw from what they call the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And so that's been the obstacle so far, which I hope will change in the future. Uh, Mrs. Carter, how do you overcome the stigma associated with mental illness, especially the stigma of needing medication for treatment of the mental illness? I'm not sure there's a stigma for needing medicine because many people need medicine um, and get medicine. But we've been, I've been working on <laughs> trying to overcome stigma for so long, 42 years, I think. And um, it's beginning to lift a little bit, not as much as I would like for it to, but it's beginning to lift a little bit on depression, and, uh, but still on, on schizophrenia and bipolar and so forth. Uh, we seem to be going backwards. We've hit a, a point where it's not moving much anymore, and in some instances it's going backwards because it seems that as people learn more about the problem of the brain, they call, which is what they will call it when they um, talk about it, um, they begin to worry about, about it. And um, 
And so I think that um, um, I don't know what we're going to do about stigma. I do think, though, that as people become more and more um, knowledgeable about mental health issues, um, and as people began, um, more people began going for help. So many people don't go for help because they don't want to be um, labeled mentally ill. And if we could ever get over that and get people, all people, going in for help, um, it, would, it would change. And I hope it's changing some now, but we have a way to go. I'm, I'm, I'm proud about depression and uh, anxiety and those kinds of issues, though, because they are beginning to lift. People are beginning to understand them. So, uh. And as the Rosalind Carter mental health journalist are writing about it and dealing with it in a very positive way, we're seeing a great impact on stigma. And, and they come here and they get a, a good um, um, bit of information about mental illnesses and and um, they do a really good job. And we have uh, the incoming and the outgoing ones, and I think I told you that to begin with, but um, um, this class is really good. The ones, the old ones, the ones that are going out and the ones that have come in. We, it's always inspiring to hear them talk because they get, uh, some of them I don't think have worked on mental health issues in the past, but then when they get, um, get the fellowship and come here, um, and begin learning, the more they learn about it, the more interested they th I think they become in uh, doing a good job and, and trying to make a difference uh, in the way people receive, um, uh, uh, receive those who are living with mental illnesses. And so many people are living with mental illnesses um, and uh, getting along well and, and working and taking care of families and um, it, it's it's just really, really exciting to have them come and uh, listen to them. We listen to them um, all day for a couple of days. We have one more day tomorrow. Uh, we heard from the ones that are outgoing. We have the outgoing, the incoming ones talking about what they're going to do, and the outgoing ones talking about what they've done. So it's been a, a really, really interesting two days. And one more day tomorrow, we'll be hearing the new ones um, here for the first year, the incoming ones, and I look forward to that. How do you both stay positive and committed to your goals when faced with disappointments and setbacks? <laughs> well, I think every human being is faced with disappointments and setbacks, with uh, trials and tribulations, with successes and failures, with hopes and dreams, and sometimes they are dashed with sorrows uh, as we lose loved ones and concerns when somebody gets ill. So I think we're not any different from anyone else. but. Um, Rose and I have a lot of insurance that helps to alleviate the, uh, the setbacks that you described because we have the Carter Center to either blame when something goes wrong uh, and to give us support when we need it. So we have kind of a, a big uh, kind of a feather bed to sleep in, and that's the Carter Center. They don't let us sleep much, but when we do, uh, we're part of it. So I think that uh, that's a, one thing that everybody has a desire to do is to have a group of people around any person with whom you can share your good times, share your bad times, strengthen you when you need it, and let you strengthen them when they need it. So that's what the Carter Center has done for us. And we have a good family. We have 23 or four of us in the Atlanta area. And so when we come to it, we come one week a month. And 
a good bit of the time we have to come in between, but we come one week a month and we have dinner with our family that's here. And um, that's always, always exciting. 23 and with a f how many great grandbabies we've got? We, we have Nine. 34 in our family. Yeah. We have a big family. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really so much fun to have them here at the court in, in the Atlanta area so we can see them pretty often. I'm very inspired by your commitment to global peace and health. What are the first steps a regular person like me can do to try to make a difference? Thank you for your service. Well, I think the first thing that anybody can do is to make a commitment to espouse peace and human rights in every aspect of life. And that can range anywhere from your writing a letter to the newspaper or the way you vote in an election, the candidates you choose, or how you relate to your own circle of friends and neighbors and family members. Uh, peace is, uh, is an important aspect of, of a Christian's life. We worship the Prince of Peace, not war. And I wrote a book a number of years ago called Talking Peace, and it defines, it's a textbook, as a matter of fact, for high school and college students on how to negotiate. And I pointed out that the same exact factors cause wars between nations or civil wars that cause a breakdown in a relationship between a husband and a wife, or between a father and a son, or between two college students who are at each other's throats. And that is an inability to communicate and to resolve differences in a rational way by listening to each other. And when this uh, breakdown takes place, if you can't bring yourself to talk to the other person as an equal, then the only thing you can do is to get some intermediary to do it for you. Maybe a, a, a relative of yours or a pastor if you're uh, in a church or in an international Conflict, come to the Carter Center or somebody else and get a mediator. And so that, that ability or willingness to, to, to resolve conflicts is what happens. And, and, and human rights, I'd say, is based on, the violation of human rights is based on one primary sin, and I would say that is pride. The pri pride is a thing that causes us to think we're superior to other people. Uh, I grew up in a time when white people were convinced and had a legal right to say we are superior to black people. And now I just mentioned three or four times today that sometimes men think we are superior to women and so forth. But uh, that white folks now in America that is a rich country are superior to African-Americans who live in Mali or Burkina Faso and so forth. Or that even now that Americans are superior to Syrians. You know, we have that natural inclination, which I, which I have too. So I would say that that to commit ourselves to peace and understanding with each other and not elevating ourselves above anybody else are the two basic uh, commitments of a human being uh, that are most important and also, I would say, very quickly, are the most difficult. Well, that is all the time we have for questions uh, tonight, but I request that you remain at your seats as the Carters depart, but first, I will give an announcement after they leave, but 
join me in thanking them for a great uh, evening. Well, thank you very much for your interest in our work and, and learning more about problems facing our neighbors around the world. We look forward to seeing you in October. Good night. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.